Greetings, Bulgarian history fans. I'm J.P. Bristol, host of the Russian Empire History Podcast. Our podcast is not just the history of the Rus and the Russians, or even the history of the Slavs. We cover all the peoples of the Russian Empire. That includes the Volga Tatars and the Chuvash, peoples descended, as I'm sure many of you know, from the Volgas who decided to go north instead of west to the Danube. From their home on the Volga, they have played a significant role in Russian history. In fact, the Russian Empire appeared when they were conquered by Ivan the Terrible. So, if you are enjoying the history of Bulgaria, why not join me to learn more about the history of the other Bulgars and many, many other peoples at therussianempirehistorypodcast.com and on all good podcast platforms. Welcome to the Bulgarian History Podcast, episode 156, The Stambul Oshtina Begins. First, I'd thank, like to thank our newest patron, Thomas Gilbert, or Thomas Gilbert, uh, I don't know. <laughs> I, I guess I'm I'm very used to Central European pronunciation, so uh, I hope one of those two is correct. Thank you so much, Mr. Gilbert. Now let's get into it. Last time, we started off with the Grand National Assembly, formally offering Ferdinand the throne. However, he would not accept it until he had the blessing of the great powers. This frustrated Stambolov, who knew that blessing was very unlikely to happen at any time soon, so the head of the regency made another play at Ferdinand's ego and got him to finally say yes. Ferdinand then had to practically sneak out of Austria-Hungary to arrive and be crowned in Turnival. He then made a quick tour of the country before settling into his rather rough and ready palace in Sofia. In the process, the first of many Russian-backed assassination attempts was foiled, and in general, the Tsar was furious that Ferdinand had been crowned. Now installed on the throne in Sofia, Ferdinand is a curiosity to many Bulgarians and a tricky diplomatic problem for the representatives of the great powers who can't officially recognize him, but need to move along with the business of diplomacy anyways. Meanwhile, the Liberal Party split yet again. But overall, Bulgarian politics have been in turmoil for years. Really, you could argue almost from the moment the Russo-Turkish War ended. But the question now is whether a new monarch in a mostly unified country may finally be be enough to bring some stability to the country. So what was Ferdinand up to in the early days after his arrival in Sofia? To start, He immediately continued his Bulgarian lessons and in the process complained bitterly to his tutor about conditions in the palace. Now, evidently what Battenberg had considered totally adequate was shockingly bad by Ferdinand's higher standards. Although that is somewhat understandable as I think it didn't get much more luxurious than the palaces of Vienna in his era of history, so he was used to just the height of luxury. Um, But yeah, it's a bit of a funny situation. 
Now, Ferdinand quickly learned that it was essential that his Bulgarian language skills improve as soon as possible when an awkward incident occurred about a month after his arrival in Sofia. Around 3,000 Bulgarians came up to his palace and demanded he appear. When he stepped onto the balcony, he received great applause until one member of the crowd demanded that he condemn the men who had kidnapped Alexander Battenberg. Not understanding that the man had what the man had said, Ferdinand responded in Bulgarian, saying, Be devoted to me. Be patriots. Thank you for your sentiments. Long live Bulgaria. End quote. So, what Ferdinand did not know was that this mostly drunk crowd had just smashed all the windows of the office of Petko Karavelov's newspaper because they felt he had not been sufficiently against Russia and the ousting of Battenberg. Ferdinand was then horrified to realize that he'd essentially endorsed the crowd's actions with his statement. But regardless of this faux pas, Ferdinand's bigger challenge was to form his first government now that the regency was dissolved. No surprise, he began by searching for a conservative. In particular, he wanted Bulgarians with European education and languages, men who he could more easily relate to, work with, and frankly, speak with in a language that he was more comfortable with. Unfortunately for Ferdinand, Sofia wasn't exactly full of such men in 1887, let alone enough to really form a government. So, after giving mandates to two candidates who failed to form a government, by late August it was clear that the only man who had the political power to do so was, of course, Stefan Stambolov. But Stambolov was not interested. For one, he was exhausted, and he felt the need to take some time to recover from the intensity of running the regency. He also wanted to take some time to earn a bit of money working as a lawyer. And finally, he felt that he and Ferdinand would just not get along, and he didn't want to begin a potential fight. However, it was clear to Ferdinand that Stambolov was the only man who could do the job at this moment. Ferdinand was an outsider. He needed his first prime minister to be someone with experience and strength. Everyone in Bulgaria and around Europe could see that the combination of the inexperienced outsider prince and an inexperienced government could be disastrous. The young monarch eventually had to resort to threats, informing Stambolov that if he refused, the only other solution would be to establish a kind of military regime. So, finally, the 30 three-year-old Stefan Stambolov agreed and became prime minister on the 1st of September, 1887, forming a coalition cabinet, including men he didn't trust but was persuaded to allow into his government for now. While he and Ferdinand certainly didn't see, didn't like, did need each other at this moment, uh, it also became clear that Stambolov's intuitions were correct and that the two really didn't get along. Watts's biography of Ferdinand has this amusing anecdote, writing, quote, When Prince Ferdinand appeared at an official reception wearing, for the first time, the ceremonial robe he had designed for the Bulgarian military order for valor, Stambolov laughed at him. The robe was of blue velvet trimmed with silver brocade, and the train was carried by four of the best-looking young cadets from the military academy. Ferdinand looked at him with cold fury. Stambolov stopped laughing and said, I'm not going with you if you wear that thing. People will just laugh at us. This took place in full public view. The prince muttered something, to which Stambolov replied, There are far more important things to be done, Highness. It would be far better if you thought about getting yourself a more reliable personal bodyguard. 
I believe that this moment illustrates, oh, sorry, end quote. All that is to say, I believe this moment illustrates the dynamic between the two men quite well. Ferdinand is proud, aristocratic, a lover of pomp and ceremony. That all those aspects of the throne, that's what he loves. But Stamilov is about as practical and unsentimental as they come. Personally, I think there's even a little irony in the fact that Stamboff would laugh at Ferdinand's clothing design when Stamboff himself was once apprenticed to become a tailor. In fact, despite not really getting along, Stamboff was indeed very concerned about Ferdinand's personal security. Now, to quote Watts once again, quote, Much to Stamboff's exasperation, Prince Ferdinand insisted on going on long walks in the streets of Sofia accompanied by an orderly and the chief of his bodyguard. Occasionally, seemingly ordinary strangers would come up to him to express their happiness and gratitude for his presence in Bulgaria. At one street corner, a peasant woman kept an apple stall at which the prince would sometimes stop to buy an apple. A small crowd would form around the stall and Ferdinand would ask them questions about their work, their families, and their political views. A German diplomat who noticed the expostulation with Stamboloff about the poor security. Stamboloff laughed at him and told him not to worry. That apple woman and all those who cluster around the prince are employed by me. He's safer in their midst than amongst his own soldiers. End quote. So again, this other anecdote gives us a nice little glimpse into how Stamboloff operates. Again, I know I keep mentioning this, but he is very practical and very unsentimental. This is how, you know, he he decides, you know what, if he's going to talk with strangers, I'll just pay them and make sure they're my people that he talks to, rather than forcing him to not walk the streets. He has that kind of solutions-oriented approach to things. I mean, this is the mentality that allowed him to propose a joint monarchy with Romania, or even that the Sultan have kind of jurisdiction over Bulgaria if it meant Bulgaria got its security. And it's the mentality that taught him that, yeah, it's easier to just pay people to interact with Ferdinand. Besides all of that, the first order of business for the new government was to arrange elections to form a new national assembly and get back to the regular business of government. Of course, while virtually every other European power was happy to see Stamboloff's steady hand running Bulgaria, Russia was, (laughs) say it with me, furious. Thus, intelligence made it clear that Russia was preparing to disrupt the elections in all manner of ways. In fact, Russia's main diplomat in Bucharest was given a million rubles to use in disrupting the Bulgarian election. Now, I checked and kind of did the math and everything. That's about $23 million in contemporary U.S. dollars. Now, at some point, Fernand himself actually offered Stamboloff half a million francs for his use in the elections, but Stamboloff just laughed it off and kind of pointed out that most of the political parties in Bulgaria would barely spend a thousand francs, and so half a million just wasn't really necessary. In any case, though, Stamboloff's usual intimidation tactics did not let him down, and his national party won a resounding victory. Only 10 of the 265 delegates elected were Russophiles. Never mind the 22% turnout and two to three dozen dead bodies resulting from soldiers opening fire on demonstrators. But regardless of the bloodshed, by mid-October, the new National Assembly began its work. Firmly under the control of Stefan Stambolov. Now, one of the many matters at hand for the National Assembly was cementing Ferdinand's legitimacy in the country. One source of opposition at this moment was the church, which was 
generally angry at an overt Catholic ruling Bulgaria. Now, to be clear, the church wasn't unified in opposition to Ferdinand. For example, one of its members, Clement of Turnival, stood out as being particularly uh, against Ferdinand. Remember, Clement of Turnival had already been prime minister twice under Battenberg and had defended Battenberg in the past. He was, though ardently, against Ferdinand and refused to mention him when delivering the liturgy. As a result, by November, the supporters of Stambolov's party were threatening to remove Ternovsky from the capital. For now, he will remain in his position, but he has clearly been marked as an enemy of the regime. Of course, of course, the, the church is also busy with other matters, as the exarch soon sent a letter to the Ottoman government requesting the appointment of Bulgarian bishops within Ottoman Macedonia, which you'll know now that Bulgaria has been unified with Thrace. The last kind of remaining piece that Bulgaria really wants is Macedonia. And, of course, appointing Bulgarian bishops would be a major step forward there. However, the Ottoman government ignores this request. The remainder of 1887 saw no real major events in Bulgaria. Although Stambolov did be begin working to minimize Russian influence and generally fight back against St. Petersburg on the diplomatic stage. He met with many foreign representatives, consistently arguing that he would not permit foreign interference in Bulgaria. He also argued that Russia's aim was the transformation of Bulgaria into a vassal state and that Russia should be opposed in this aim. Russia's foreign minister, for his part, referred simply to, quote, disobedient Bulgaria, end quote, explaining further that, quote, we regard Bulgaria as a flea, which, although it can bite and annoy, is otherwise harmless. We spit on Bulgaria, end quote. So, well, no surprise that conflict isn't going to be resolved anytime soon, but still, I find that quote from the Russian foreign minister to be rather shocking, even in this context. And the extent to which the Russian government really kind of regards Bulgaria as nothing more than its servant and its puppet, and the fury which is displayed when Bulgaria kind of displays any degree of independence is telling. Now, in the meantime, Bernand was already beginning to feel frustrated in several interesting regards. For one, Bernand wanted to create an aristocratic elite in a country that had no formal aristocracy. He wanted to build a court, but was frustrated because his diplomatic isolation meant that the usual foreign representatives that would fill out his court were banned from doing so by their respective governments. Regardless, he worked to build the structure of a court, borrowing ceremonies from France, Germany, and even Russia, as well as incorporating his own ideas. As I've mentioned, Ferdinand just loved this part of being prince, so he was always happy to invent some ceremonies and things. But this wasn't the only reason he missed having a proper court. And I'll quote Watts once again on this, writing, quote, What weighed most was the lack of discreet and easy sexual outlets. No elegant borderland between prostitution and easy virtue to which he had become accustomed in his teens in Vienna and Paris. There were no midinets in Sofia. The prince was bisexual throughout his life, but up to early middle age, his homosexual tendencies were overshadowed by his desire for women. He saw his enforced chastity as a direct result of the international climate. His non-recognition by the European powers prevented him from setting up an elegant cosmopolitan court to spice and leaven the provincial simplicities of Bulgaria. For the moment, 
the flesh pots of Paris and Vienna, of Carlsbad and Marienbad, were all out of bounds. He could not leave Bulgaria with the unsettled, unsettled international situation and the equally uncertain outlook in Bulgaria. End quote. Now, I'm going to bet you, dear listener, had not guessed that one of the consequences of Bulgaria's diplomatic isolation on the European stage would be the immense sexual frustration of its monarch, but here we are. Ferdinand's mother attempted to help by inviting several ministers and their wives to spend some time with Ferdinand in the mountains at the Rila Monastery, but all of them declined. Poor Clementine hadn't realized that husbands and wives spending time around a bachelor like Ferdinand was kind of a faux pas in Bulgarian culture and society at the time. Now, Ferdinand did attempt to court the wife of the Bulgarian army's chief of staff. However, well, I apologize for quoting Watts again, but he's got some great lines on all of this. So he writes, quote, It was then he realized that in the absence of salons and social life as he had known it, nearly everyone in Sofia was in bed and asleep by 10. There would be no chance for him to have the kind of smooth, discreet affairs to which he had been used. End quote. Living in Sofia today, it's a bit amusing to think of the whole city going to sleep by 10. But there you are. You know, Ferdinand is still in so many ways struggling to adapt to his new role and the differences between Sofia and Vienna. Now, speaking of the army, that was another major point of focus for Ferdinand and Stambolov alike. This initially created some conflict as Stambolov wanted a loyal man in charge of the army while Ferdinand insisted he be put in control so he could control who got promoted within the army. However, eventually Stambolov won out. He knew from experience that pro-Russian elements within the army had to be put on a tight leash to avoid further uprisings and coups. But what both men did agree on was that the army needed to be expanded. Stambolov and Ferdinand embarked on a project to double the size of the Bulgarian army. One intended result was to produce was to reduce rather discontent within the army by finally providing sufficient opportunities for advancement. You'll recall this is a major source of bad feelings on the part of the officer corps in the past. Still, if many officers were happier under this new arrangement, plenty were made quite unhappy by Ferdinand's attempts to seduce their wives. This happened often enough that more than a few officers found that their resistance to the prince's advances could actually result in their careers taking a turn for the worse. So you can imagine that's pretty frustrating. One prominent example was a special celebration given in honor of Ferdinand's 27th birthday in February of 1888. A special performance was put on by his mother in which various dancers in traditional dress, as well as the colors of Bulgaria and Saxe-Coburg Gotha, put on an allegorical performance designed to connect Ferdinand with Bulgaria's ancient imperial past. Now, all of this sounds okay, fine, but in practice it meant that many of the women that Ferdinand fancied were put in lovely dresses and danced around a bust of him. Both Bulgarian and foreign newspapers were quite aghast at both the sexual element as well as, once again, the implication that Ferdinand might proclaim himself Tsar and Bulgaria independent, thus triggering a European war. Still, Ferdinand did have some successes in wooing the army as well. For example, on the second anniversary of the Battle of Slivnica, he sent a telegram to Battenberg sharing his congratulations for his achievements in that war. 
Battenberg's reply was simple, writing, quote, I sincerely thank your highness for your sentiments. I have no doubt that the army which I created and led to victory will always support your highness and your endeavors for a happy and flourishing Bulgaria. Alexander, end quote. When this letter was published in Bulgarian newspapers, it helped improve relations between the many off- army officers still loyal to Battenberg and their new sovereign. Now, what also helped Ferdinand was that was his mother's visit a few months after he took the throne, which is why she was in town to organize that event for his birthday. Although Clementine would never enjoy great popularity in Bulgaria, she was exceptionally adept at winning over important friends using her generous charitable giving to help secure her son's position. But ironically, just at this moment, when things seemed to be stabilizing somewhat for Ferdinand, quite the opposite was happening on the wider European stage. Around the same time Clementine was visiting and Ferdinand was celebrating Slivnica, the government in Vienna stated that while they do not officially recognize Ferdinand as Prince of Bulgaria, they do recognize his government as being the de facto government in Sofia. This statement might seem like a mild recognition of reality, but it very nearly sent Europe to war. The Russian press interpreted this as official recognition of Ferdinand, and it unleashed a tidal wave of anti-Austrian and anti-German sentiments. Soon, there were reports of Russian troop movements, and many military leaders in Vienna urged the emperor to strike first. Likewise, in Berlin, the German army begged Bismarck to be allowed to strike first. Fortunately, though, for everyone involved, Tsar Alexander III soon stopped by Berlin on his way home from Denmark, and in a meeting with the Kaiser and Bismarck, he was able to get everyone to agree to calm down. But that same meeting drove yet further scandal for poor Ferdinand. While in Denmark, the Russian Tsar had been presented with copies of letters which seemed to prove that Bismarck had been secretly in support of Ferdinand, while he had been telling the Tsar that Germany opposed him just as much as the Russians. The very sensitive and just very touchy Tsar was absolutely livid. But Bismarck convinced him that the letters were forgeries, and in fact they were. The French had forged them in an attempt to cement the alliance between Russia and France, which Bismarck wanted so desperately to break. So, just to recap there so we're all clear, right? France and Russia are generally friendly and are trying to reinforce their alliance. But Germany desperately doesn't want this because it would mean a potential war on two fronts, and so Germany is trying to break up that friendship. So France invented these letters to hurt the German-Russian relationship, but the Germans showed the Russians that these were forgeries, although they didn't know the French were behind them. So before the true source of those forgeries was discovered, Bismarck actually believed that maybe Ferdinand was the one who forged them, and the German press just savaged Ferdinand. The new Bulgarian monarch really just could not catch a break. Ferdinand himself believed that the Russians must have been behind the forgeries and blamed Bismarck for the whole ordeal. Long story short, everyone got mad and suspicious at basically everyone else, but at least a general European war had been avoided. Still, it's quite bizarre to imagine that little Bulgaria may have kicked off the First World War a few decades early simply by insisting on obtaining a monarch. In fact, in this 
In his last great speech before the German Reichstag, Bismarck himself stated simply that, quote, Bulgaria, that little country between the Danube and the Balkans, is far from being an object of adequate importance for which to plunge Europe from Moscow to the Pyrenees and from the North Sea to Palermo into a war whose issue no man can foresee. At the end of the conflict, we should scarcely know why we had fought. End quote. So he's not entirely wrong there. Ultimately, Bismarck did manage to further calm the war tensions by convincing the Sultan to once again send a letter to Sofia stating that he considered Ferdinand to be a not-legal monarch. While Ferdinand's pride was hurt, he again followed Stamblov's advice to simply ignore the letter, as it meant really nothing in practical terms. It was just a gesture designed to placate the hurt feelings of the Russian Tsar, and in that it succeeded so there was no need for anyone to do anything more about it. Still, the lack of recognition did a serious blow to Ferdinand's ego. But there was nothing that could be done for the moment. It was now 1888, and Bulgaria was ready to finally begin some serious economic development under the stability and accompanying repression of this new era, the Stambolovstina, or the time of Stambolov. So next time, We'll dive further into this era and better understand just what both that Stumbleoff repression and the economic development that accompany it looks like in practice and how it is going to shape Bulgaria for the coming years. So you won't want to miss it. This episode was produced and written by me, Eric Halsey. The theme music, as always, was written and performed by the talented Teddy Raven. Check out the podcast website for tons more information on this in every single episode. And thank you all for listening.